My journey as a pastor began almost a decade ago, a decade ago actually, this last spring. And what has surprised me most about being a pastor is how much of my life is spent thinking about death. Because you think it would be the other way around, wouldn't you? Because we, we don't tend to talk about death as much as we talk, tend to talk about resurrection. But the reality is, in the years I've spent as a pastor, I've spent a lot of time with people in, in the wake of experiencing uh, a death. And, and my years spent preparing to be a pastor, Bible college and graduate school, it seemed to help me prepare to equip us for living but not necessarily for dying. But I spend a lot of my time thinking about death because the people I pastor are thinking about death. And that might not be the case for all pastors everywhere. If you pastor a church of only 20-somethings, maybe then, maybe you don't think a lot about death, but 20-somethings, that's, that's the season of your life when your grandparents pass away. That's when your friends die in tragic accidents or from overdose or from suicide. And so what I'm learning is that to be a Christian is to think about death. In a culture that does its best to think about anything but death. I don't know if you've noticed, but ours is a culture obsessed with youth. And while scripture says that gray hair is a crown, in our cultural moment, gray hair is actually some sort of symbol of becoming obsolete. Unless you have a unique skill like Meryl Streep, or evidently if you want to run for president of the United States, once you turn 70, we really just aren't all that interested in you anymore. So the elderly languish alone in some nursing home visited by their parents or their children or grandchildren just once or twice a year, if at all. And our commercials are filled with smooth-skinned 20-somethings. We redefine what life means so that we don't have to think about what death means. I talk to more and more people who would rather not attend a funeral, who, who skip that cultural grieving practice entirely. Our cultural moment is rife with anxiety because for the better part of two years, we have been forced to think about death. COVID-19 forced upon us a reflection on death and that anxiety manifests as anger as we either obsess over it or pretend it's not happening at all. But as the people of Jesus, we, we, we are called to think about death and to think about it well. And thinking about death well means, well, when I was a kid growing up, Every once in a while, I would think I saw a monster in the corner of my uh, bedroom, and, 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 and that would disturb me. So then what would happen is um, my mom would come into the room, and she would, she would turn on the light, and I would come to see that this monster lurking in the corner of my room was like some clothes that I had thrown over a chair with like a toy sticking out from underneath it. That's what it means to think of death as a Christian. It's not to think that death is nothing but that we see death clearly like in the light of day and the light of the resurrection of Jesus. Death is a monster. It is an awful foreign invader into creation. A, to a terrorist meets totalitarian dictator. That's what death is. Death 
is to be grieved. It's, it's not to be glibly ignored. And so within the way of Jesus, within the way of Jesus, there is, there is a tension. There is a tension between this life and the life to come. There is a, a tension between death and grief and Jesus' victory over those things. His desire to enter into grief as our trusted companion. And it's a tension that I, I think that prayer that I found and Rhett shared earlier, I think it's a tension that prayer gets right. It says, eternal God, hope of all who trust in you, in Christ you weep with those who mourn, even as you cry out in triumph over the grave. This is the life of faith. This is the life of faith. It is it is following a Jesus who weeps with those who weep while also crying out in triumph over the grave. In this morning on All Saints Day, we are invited into like a twofold experience then. We are invited to consider the gravity of death and the weight of grief and also how following Jesus secures for us victory over those things in a life that will not end. And so this morning, I want us to try to embrace this tension. We, we talked about hell two weeks ago. Yeah. And this morning, what I want us to consider is, is kind of the opposite of that, is heaven. And how does that give us an ability to comprehend what we're doing here this morning and how do we, and just how we live starting this afternoon. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, which is the very last chapter of the Bible. It's easy. You can flip to the back of your Bible and then just turn a couple pages over. We're in Revelation chapter 21. I want to explore the promise of heaven and what that means. Revelation 21. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a revelation. It seeks to reveal to us what is actually happening in our lives as they go on. Uh, we get caught up in work and parenting and retirement and all of the things that we are struggling with, and we kind of forget that there's a truer and greater reality happening behind us, and Revelation seeks to pull the curtain back a little bit to help us get a true glimpse of what reality is. And in Revelation chapter 21, the very end of the Bible, it says this, starting in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be with his people God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. Here's what heaven is all about. Heaven is, is a real place where sickness, sadness, and suffering are no more. Heaven is a real place where sickness, sadness, and suffering are no more. And they are no more because God has created a new world without those things. Did you see that it said, I saw coming down out of heaven a new heaven and a new earth. Um, it's like Jack just got this, this easel for Christmas early from my parents while they were here. And he paints these pictures and they're good. And then he's done and he rips that off and pulls down more paper. 
right? This is kind of the picture that is coming, is that our eternity is not spent on a cloud playing a harp in this void of space. Our eternity is spent in a new heaven and a new earth, a place that God recreates and redeems and restores, really takes back to what he had always intended earth and heaven to be, a place where we dwell with him. It's as if God's presence in this place chases away all sadness, sickness, and suffering, and sin. It, it's as if God's goodness and presence, fully unveiled, chases these things away, and he personally comes to relieve us of our grief. He personally comes to relieve us of our sadness and suffering. An interesting little verse in here, by the way, it says, and the sea was also gone, and the sea was also gone. That sounds sad if you like the beach, right? Um, uh, the sea in the book of Revelation, as with uh, a lot of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, the sea represents chaos, right? And so it's not that there will be no more oceans in the new heavens and the new earth. Somebody say amen. Um, but, 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 but it's that this chaos that marks our lives, the chaos that marked the lives of the people that have come forward this morning, right? That chaos is gone. But the very best part of all of it is this, this part of verse 3. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with him. This gap, this distance that has existed between us and God since time immemorial will finally be closed and we will dwell in love of God and in love for God with everyone who has ever loved God together in this one giant human family, this celebration of dwelling with God. And this, this is exactly what our loved ones who died in the Lord, it's what they are experiencing now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The new heavens and the new earth aren't fully here yet. God is still working toward that. Theologians call the time between now and then the intermediate state, but this is what we know. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our loved ones who knew Jesus and follow Jesus are living in a place where there is no sadness, no sickness, no suffering, where what ailed them in body what ailed them in mind and soul is no longer part of the equation. But, th but the problem with that, right, the problem with that is it leaves us with a question. What are we supposed to do with our lives while they're, I don't know, enjoying everything wonderful? And more importantly, why couldn't God just give them that promise and that blessing and that healing and that joy now? Like, why did they have to die, in many, many cases, a gruesome death, an untimely death? To help us think through that, we would turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in Hebrews 11 and 12 for the rest of this. I mean, that's the question we ask, right? Like, why did this happen? Why did God not intervene? Why does healing, the reality of those of us who follow Jesus is every one of us who gets sick will be healed. Only for some of us is it on this side of heaven 
for the vast majority of us is on that side of heaven. But why can't it be on this side of heaven? I mean, we all expect to die, but very few of us expect to die quietly in our sleep. And so for many Christians, let's just be honest, it's not death that scares us, it's dying. We watch our loved ones die in difficult and painful ways, unexpected ways, untimely ways, and we ask why. It leaves us mystified and grieving. Why couldn't God break into the now and do something? Why wait till forever? And Hebrews 11 helps us explain this. Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the hall of faith, right? And it recounts all these stories of people in the Bible. So it says in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And it goes on, starts telling story. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. As you go on, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him. It was by faith that Sarah was able to have a child. It was by faith that God offered Isaac as a sacrifice. It was by faith that Jacob. Uh, it was by faith that Moses. It was by faith that Israel. It was by faith that Israel marched around Jacob. It was by faith that Rahab, who by the way was a prostitute. And it goes on and names all of these people. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And you look through all of these lists and you come to kind of start doing some math and you realize that about half of the people on this list experience the fullness of God's blessing and promise and healing and restoration and rescue and redemption and salvation. They experience the fullness of what God had to offer in this life. And the other half didn't get to experience it until after they died. There's this great hall of faith. Half of them experience all the fullness of what God has to offer. I mean, there's a guy named Enoch in the Old Testament who just gets caught up with God. He gets to skip death entirely, right? So you have about half of these people that experience breakthrough and the redemption and the rescue and the salvation and the healing in the now. The other half wait until after glory. And I don't know why God does what he does or, or why God allows what God allows. But what I know is that the promise of healing, God's healing and rescue and breakthrough and freedom and forgiveness and rescue and, and salvation is, is real in this life. That by faith we can trust God to deliver us and redeem us and spare us in this life. We will see the sick healed. We will see the afflicted delivered. We will see the dead raised. But we will also see the sick die. We will see the afflicted overcome. And we will see the dead, forgive me, stay dead. And so what we do with that is this, with this twin reality, is that we, what we do with that is that we honor those of you in this room who have lost a loved one. We honor those of you who have lost a loved one as the families of veterans, right? Your loved ones died in a battle between good and evil, the powers of light and darkness, and so we honor you as you come forward to light this candle as, a family, as almost a veteran's family in, in this battle. We gather around you in your grief. We press into your grief with you, but we trust that there's a fullness of promise coming. And we trust, we trust the fullness of what Hebrews 12 goes on to say. 
Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Now listen, here are our questions. Why does God do the things he does? We don't know. We just know that all of us will experience the fullness of his rescue and salvation. Some of us before we die, some of us after we die. And so we trust him in that. That's, that's, that's why God does what he does. But here's the other question. What do we do while we are still living? And this is what Hebrews chapter 12 gets at. Hebrews chapter 12 gets at this idea that it's our job while we still have breath to run after Jesus. Right? Paul says, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, all of these people in Hebrews 11, these giants of the faith, but also our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our children, our neighbors, our Sunday school teachers, our mentors, every, every saint throughout all history, every follower of Jesus throughout all history gets caught up in this great crowd of witnesses, and it, and it becomes like that, that parade that went through the streets of Cleveland after the Cavaliers won the national championship, right? They, they, they sit in these grandstands and they watch us with bated breath and great expectation and they are eager for us to chase after Jesus, to pursue him with our whole hearts, our loved ones who love Jesus. They see clearly now what we only see partly. They dwell in a place of peace. They dwell in a place free of pain and suffering. And because they've realized that that's the prize at the end of the race, they are so eager for you and I to run with speed to pay the price to earn that prize. That's why, that's why uh, the author of Hebrews says, let's strip off every weight that slows us down. Here's what we spend our lives doing. We spend our lives with the prize in front of us. The prize is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pay any price that helps us attain to that prize faster. We don't, now hear me on this, we don't ignore our grief. Casting off every weight, of, every weight that slums us down is not like happy, clappy, yelling praise songs from the back of the church until we don't feel sad anymore. We don't ignore our grief. In fact, I would argue, when we ignore our grief, it weighs us down more for the race that we're trying to run. Instead, instead of shortcutting our grief, we meet God the Holy Spirit in our grief. God the Holy Spirit who is called the Comforter. He gives us each other and he leads us through our grief. In fact, if you are grieving this morning, here's what I want to say to you. The only way out is the way through. When it comes to grief, the only way out is the way through. And I'm sorry for the ways that I, I'm sorry for the ways that we, while you've kind of been in way back there in grief, we've all just been living our lives like everything's fine. Yeah. So on the one hand, we, we don't ignore our grief. We process it in the presence of Jesus in community with all of the, the, those things. 
And yet, on the other hand, we look up, we look up, and we hear the cries of this great crowd of witnesses who are eager for us to pursue Jesus with our whole hearts. Because from their perspective, and don't fall out of your chair, I'm going to use a sports metaphor here. From their perspective, the game is just that close. From their perspective, the game is tied, and you and I are in double overtime with one foul shot. I I actually got to see LeBron James play in Cleveland like weeks before he did what shall not be named. And we were watching them play this game, and uh, my friend Nick took me with him. He had tickets, and so we were, we were pretty up high, and, and the game was tied. And I remember LeBron did this shot from, like, I don't know, 3,000 feet away, and, and he sunk it. And I have never—I mean, I, you guys know me. I don't—sports that, that, do not make my socks roll up and down, but there was something undeniable about that moment of this shared experience of like we got it and that that is how our loved ones feel they're this great cloud of crowd of witnesses watching as the clock winds down as we make this shot pleading with us pleading with us the game is that close the score is that tight the battle is just that heated and so they want us to run to cast off the weight of sin, to run the race, to pour our lives out for the sake of others because of the promise of the life to come, because of Jesus in our midst. And so really what we're called to do this morning on All Saints, as we we process our grief, which is real, as as we meet this Jesus who weeps with those who mourn and who cries out in victory over the grave, we're almost called to walk on a tightrope or like a balance beam. We're called to walk this very narrow path. And like to the one side is this ditch where our grief, um, we over-identify with our grief and we get stuck there and, and we never quite escape it, where we forget the victory of Jesus and we uh, for, and we forget the power of Jesus and kind of just dwell in this kind of quasi-state of defeat and on the other side of the narrow path is this, like, forgive me, over-realized eschatology, this, this kind of happy, clappy victory in Jesus, nothing is ever wrong, all of the time kind of peace. And so what we do is we under-identify with our grief, right? But we're called to the narrow way. And I, I've never walked on a tightrope. I've never been on a balance beam. I think we can all say thank you, Jesus, for that. But here's, here's what I know for sure. When you're walking on that, you don't look to either side, and you certainly don't look down. You pick a point, and you walk toward it, right? And and that's why the author of Hebrews says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So so we, we don't have to be triumphalistic. Jesus' desire isn't for us to grit our teeth through sorrow. Instead, it's his desire to befriend us in that grief. But we don't have to be defeatist. Jesus' desire isn't for us to be trapped in our grief forever. He wants to lead us 
out of it. He doesn't just want to befriend us in it. He wants to lead us out of it. And Jesus wants us to join him in his compassion and his victory. Our loved ones want us to run the race before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. It is easy to lose the way. It is so easy to lose the way. To fall into the bottomless pit of grief or into this happy clappy ignoring really how I feel triumph it's easy to lose the way it's it's hard to keep our eyes on Jesus but this is what I love about Jesus Jesus comes and he says this is John 14 and this is where I'll end us Jesus says this don't let your hearts be troubled trust in God and trust also in me there is more than enough room in my father's house if it weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And listen, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. And a guy named Thomas at the back of the class says, uh, No, no, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how could we know the way? And Jesus says, I'll show you the way. No. Jesus says, I am the way, right? It is so easy to lose the way, your way on this journey of grief, but Jesus comes to us and says, follow me, I am the way, I am the way. Let me pray and we're gonna receive communion together, okay? Jesus, I just kind of have this picture of you walking up to each person in the room and just so like gently putting your hand on the bottom of their chin, and just like lifting their eyes up to see you. And so Lord, I just pray that um, this morning as we process our grief, as we just even get a chance to see the folks in our community who are grieving today or uh, are just in need of um, some encouragement and care, Lord, we pray that we would also see you. I pray for my, my brothers and sisters in this room, my family that are, that are just struggling. And I pray, Jesus, that you would befriend them Jesus, you're a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Um, and so I pray that you would uh, meet them in their grief and lead them through it. We pray this in the name of Jesus.